Listener Production. Okay, are you recording? Hello, superstars. Welcome along to episode 170 of the Howie Games Part A. 170, that is a lot of episodes, and it couldn't have happened without the support of you good people for tuning in, for spreading the word, so thank you. Well done to you all. Alrighty, this episode features a groundbreaker in Aussie sport. The first Australian to win the famed Indy 500, Will Power. Will Power, Indianapolis 500 winner for 2018. Checker flag, Power and Penske win it. Born in Toowoomba, Will is not a silver spoon racing driver, one whose path to success was paved with money. No, 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 no. Will and his family had to scrap and scrape for every single dollar, mortgaging houses, racing in inferior equipment, relying on talent and sheer will. Admirable qualities, but they're often not enough in Will's chosen sport. So you search and try to find, but you don't know where to go. So many thoughts flood through your mind. You're confused and want to know, mystery, what is to be? So much more than meets the eye. Listen to me, time is your key. You will find out by and by. Now, this episode, it was just cruising along following a gentle path when the subject of the death of one of Will's competitors, Dan Weldon, in a race in 2011 in Las Vegas alongside Will, came up. Will's open account of the effect this tragedy had on him was something I wasn't expecting at all. But his honest and reflective descriptions of this time in his life will help others who listen and find themselves with battles in their life. I admire Will enormously for talking in such depth about a potentially really difficult topic. Mental health comes up in the discussion. If you or anyone you know is having some issues in this space, you can always call Lifeline on 13 11 14. So many lost and left behind no one seemed to care those who should seems like they're blind pretending they're not there can't they see they hold the key could make things better if they try oh my jaja tell me why won't they open up their eyes from go-karts to one of the biggest races on the planet will power what a name by the way for a racer will power has achieved incredible success far away from home. He's understated and modest, but there is a steal to his will. Thanks to Liz, Will's wife, for making this episode happen by tying Will down for a couple of hours. Enjoy the story of Will Stephen Power, a man driven by perfection. So when you search and then you find And know just where to go And thoughts that once used to cloud your mind You see clearly and now you know Mystery, what is to be revealed in King Selassie? Come on, children, tread with me. We want to reach Mount Zion. Welcome to the Howie Games, a man that is the 2014 and 22 IndyCar champ, but more than that, he's the 2000 Queensland Formula Ford champ from a long, long, long time ago. Will Power, great to see you, mate. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Where are you coming in from? You live on a lake, yeah? I do. I live on Lake Norman in North Carolina. It's near the city of Charlotte. 
You've lived in the United States for a long, long time now. Tell me what life is like in America for you and your young family. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's very enjoyable. I'm ha- I've had a great time over here. I've had a great career over here. Um, and, and uh, yeah, I've lived away from Australia longer than I've lived in Australia now. So I am, I'm an American citizen and uh, still an Australian citizen. Uh, and, and I'm pretty sure this will be my home for, for life. An American wife, an American son? Yep, American, American wife, American son. Wife's from Texas uh, originally and I met her in Indianapolis. We had, uh, we've got a five-year-old, soon to be six in December, so little boy. And for, for a man from Toowoomba in Queensland, what's it like hearing your young bloke with an American accent? Uh, yeah, it's interesting, actually. Yeah, he has an American accent. He's going to have a total American accent, but uh, that's all I hear when I'm over here anyway, so um, sounds pretty normal. But, yes, it does strike me sometimes when I hear him. Um, he's a bit of a late, he's a, he's a late talker, so when, he's, when, you, when he does say words, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's yeah, full American accent. Are you still a peculiarity as an Australian living where you do? I guess so. I feel really at home, but I I, I have to realise that every time I meet someone, it's going to be like, oh, wait a minute, this guy's not from here. Uh, yeah, so that's that's just going to be for me for the rest of my life if I live here. I was I was looking, um, and people will gain an understanding of the profile you have in America. I was looking this morning at you after you won your first title, and you're on Letterman. Ladies and gentlemen, please say hello to your 2014 Verizon Indy Car Series champion, Will Power, everybody. Pretty cool for for a bloke from Queensland. And your man David Letterman was trying to get his head round Toowoomba and he was asking you whether you're the first sort of big-time motorsport operator out of Toowoomba and you sort of had to say to him, yes, I enjoyed that interview, Will. Yeah, no, yeah, that uh, that that was a great great interview. I mean, it just blew my mind that I was on David Letterman. I just, you know, when you're a kid, you're watching those late night shows in America and you just, you would never envision yourself being on one of them. But uh, yeah, it was, it was surreal, but it was really cool. And um, yeah, enjoyed the interview. How did you get into this caper? A young bloke from Toowoomba, as you explained to David Letterman, it's not exactly uh, the Charles Leclerc living in Monaco, centre of the racing world. How did you get into motorsport? Um, uh, my father raced, I think he originally raced Speedway, dirt track, and then he got into Formula Formula cars, open wheel cars, and raced Formula 2 in Australia back in the 70s and 80s. And then he put us in go-karts. I have three brothers uh, and and uh, myself and two two of the older brothers raced go karts, and that's where it all started. But I, as early as I can remember, I was obsessed with open wheel racing because my father had one. We'd sit up and watch Formula One. I remember we used to talk about and watch Indianapolis, um, and and you know that's all I wanted to be was a race car driver. That's all I talked about as a kid, and and myself and my next oldest brother, we used to play racing as we call it and he'd push you around all down in a car um, socks for gloves and underwear for the balaclava that's what we used to do <laughs> so you had the jocks on the head yeah yeah that's what we used to do and um and, and that's where yeah so it really the way this all ended out i did live my childhood dream 
I did live my dream, uh, becoming a professional race car driver, racing Indianapolis, um, racing open wheel cars. And, yeah, that's, that's where it all started. Who was your guy when you were watching Formula One? You would have been like me watching it with probably Alan Jones was on it at that stage on the hosting. It was 10.30 at night. You used to come on to Channel 9. Who was your guy? Who did you, who'd you follow in the F1s? It was Nelson Piquet. Nelson Piquet was, it? was the my favourite driver, yeah. And my older brother, it was Nicky Lauda. Um, right. Obviously, Nicky Lauda retired. Nelson Piquet was my guy and... Um, and I got to race his son in British Formula 3, Nelsino, and, uh, for two years. Yeah, and then I raced him once in A1GP. I had a good battle with him. But, yeah, yeah, no, I, uh, it was kind of cool seeing him in the paddock because, yeah, that was, that was my uh, – he was my favourite driver for whatever reason, I don't know, um, the name or the way he looked or whatever, but, yeah. Was it something um – was it setting the old VHS and hoping you recorded the right channel and watching it the next day, or you, you and your dad and your brothers would stay up and, and watch it on a Sunday night on nine? Dad would wake us up sometimes. Yeah, some would we, we'd miss a lot of them, but Dad would wake us up um, and uh, obviously watch the Australian Grand Prix every time. But yeah, yeah, I remember Dad waking us up and we try to stay awake and watch it. What is the first event you've entered in a competitive car race as a kid? Like, when do you first race? Is it a car? Is it a car? What is it? It's a go-kart. It's, um, oh, I reckon it's, it's like 1987, something like that. Um, yeah, six, six or so years old. Yeah, just a kid. Just a little kid. I do, yeah, that was, that was I can't actually remember my first race. I can vaguely remember the first time I ever drove a go-kart. It was really daunting for me and my brother. So we stood and watched from the outside and we were like, man, we can go quicker than that guy, watching some kid go around. And when we got in, we were like, oh, my, this is way faster than we thought. We didn't like it. <laughs> we didn't like it at all. Were you one of those kids at, at the racetrack where everyone was like, oh, no, we're racing willpower, or were you just sort of working your way into it? Well, we never took it all that seriously. So we were never like had all the engines done because there were some people, there's kids out there that had big engines and, you know, like karting's very particular. You've got to have the right engine and um, right everything. And back, there, back then the rules were probably a bit more open as well than it is now. Uh, yeah, I, I was not that competitive when I first started. Like, yeah, I felt like we always lacked engine. My dad was trying to run two classes and race himself, so we were doing all the work on the carts ourselves, and it was a real mess, honestly. Um, yeah, and I kind of never... I didn't take it seriously till the year 2000, like, seriously, like, yeah, I could actually make a career of it. Um, and that's that's after go-karts. I went go-karts, race that short track, dirt, dirt track stuff when I was about 16. I was in a Formula 4 when I was 17, and then... In 2000, I drove for a, uh, a Formula Ford team, Spectrum, and that was the first time I was extremely serious about it, like very fit, very focused. All I thought about was racing and I was just, it, it just consumed my life. And what was it as a young kid that grabbed you? Like some kids want to be musicians, others want to play cricket, others want to be scientists. What was it about motor racing, Will, that grabbed you and became such a massive part of your life, mate? Well, initially as a kid, it was, I was just, you know, in awe of open wheel cars. And I was like that for, um, you know, until I actually did take it seriously. But 
I probably never believed that it would be possible for me to do that. I don't think I believed that that would be possible, that I could make it. So I probably never sort of set out on this path because um, there was never a set path like, oh, yeah, I'm going to end up here. Um, and, and, yeah, so, you know, when I get into something, I really get into it, like absolutely want to understand all the technicalities of it and how to be the absolute best at it. And the older I've got, the more I've realized that's my strength. My strength is my obsessive sort of compulsive on details. And, um, and that's how I was in 2000, just absolutely obsessed in the car. I think I was in the car 50 weeks of the year. Um, whether it's a go-kart uh, track or a former Ford, I was just racing and preparing the car myself, tying it to the track. Um, also drove for a team, but um, became quite a good mechanic setting the cars up and all that sort of thing. I was just absolutely engrossed in it. And uh, that was the starting point of, oh, yeah, you could probably, I could probably make this a profession. There's a chance that, you know, I could end up in V8 supercar. Um, but, the, you know, uh, racing the open wheel stuff, I was like, I really want to go overseas. I want to go over race. Didn't know if that was, seemed so impossible at that time, but somehow I clawed my way through with meeting the right people, getting the funding, yeah, because in all those junior categories, you bring the money, you pay, you pay for the ride. So you head over to to England. What, what's a season of British Formula Three generally cost? As you say, you, you've got to provide the money to get the drive. How much are we talking to run a season of that? Do you reckon, Will? At that Ish. at that time, it was three hundred and sixty thousand pounds. Wow! And that and that's when the pound was extremely strong. Like it was probably close to double the strength of the dollar, yeah. so you're having to find. So we're talking nearly $700,000. Yeah. So how, was this a family commitment? Did your mum and dad dip in to get you this happening? The, yeah, they actually did. And my dad sold two of his houses. He had some rental houses behind the shed that he had for his, his uh, business. It was a canvas goods manufacturing business, a small business, and he owned some houses behind it and rented them. He sold them. To fund it, I think he put in, if I remember correctly back then, you know, he got 400000 out of selling both them. Or that's how much he had to put in. And then I had other people helping me and um, uh, we, we did the first half of the season. That's all we could afford. And it was with everyone ran a Delara chassis. We got a deal yep. with a Rolt chassis and, and it was the only Rolt in the field. Which wasn't good. I mean, I call. I mean, right. I was thirtieth, thirtieth. So halfway through the year, we just kind of we'd run out of money. Yeah, the whole roll thing just didn't work out. wasn't a good car. I wasn't fast. I needed a teammate with so I could overlay the data and understand um, how to go faster. And um, and so I had two races off. Then I struck a deal with Fortech, which was a good team. They were they were running at the front. And um, I think I did a deal for a hundred thousand pounds. I think the Australian Motorsport Foundation helped me, and maybe a couple of other people. And I did really well straight out of the box. I was immediately in the top five, and um, pretty quick. And and I finished the season out with those guys, and it was a really good deal too for all the testing and everything that that I got with that. Who were you racing against? Like there will have, there will have probably been guys that have gone on to motorsport, probably even Formula One in that Formula Three year. Yeah, it was uh, Nelson Piquet Junior. who went on yep. to race yep. for, for Renault. 
Lewis Hamilton was just coming into Formula 3. He did the last round of British Formula 3 at Brands Hatch. Lewis Hamilton on his debut lines up on row four alongside Quivio Piccioni. This is going to be interesting. The engine revs already rising. Did you beat him, Will? I think I had a I had a massive crash. I was running in the top five. He was he oh. was he was back there. He didn't and he then I had a big crash. Down the hill into Graham Hill Bend. You're looking at willpower. Oh, and he's hit the side of Rob Austin and someone else off as well. I think that's James Walker and that's desperately disappointing. And hurt my back badly. But then I went and raced and the steering wheel was all they didn't repair <laughs> the car well, unfortunately, because it was a quick pair. Broke the engine earlier. It's a big shunt. And then Lewis Hamilton, I had to start at the back because of that. Lewis Hamilton was in front of me, had a big, big crash with another guy and was actually knocked out. Oh, and that is a huge accident at the entrance to Clearways. Well, that's no afternoon nap. Lewis Hamilton is out for the count in that car. The marshal there suddenly realises and really now just checking out the situation. And as a dad now to a young fella, I'm sure you'd do anything to help your son along in his path. But you wouldn't have had an appreciation at that age, I wouldn't have thought, about what your parents were doing for you at the time. When you became a parent yourself, did you gain a greater understanding of what they had done for you financially? Like it's a big thing to sell a couple of houses to help your young bloke out, isn't it? It's. It was actually, I actually felt pretty guilty and um, I felt like I really needed to, to pull it off to... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to warrant what they'd done for me, but, um, you know, to pay them back to, but, uh, yeah, I was actually pretty aware back then. I was, that's, that's tough. I didn't feel good about it. I did not feel all that good. I was, my dad wanted to do it. I didn't feel all that good about it because I wasn't, I just, it felt like such a tough, um, mountain decline considering the kids we were racing against with all the money and testing they had seriously rich kids in there that just had unlimited testing and PK was one of them. PK had unlimited, he was in that car three days a week, unlimited tyres, unlimited testing. There was no restrictions back then. You know, they lightened all the gears, they, you know, in the gearbox. They, you'd see all light bits on the car. They, they, they were able to do all this sort of development. So that was sort of what you were up against. So whenever I raced him, I raced the absolute shit out of him. Um, yeah, I had some big <laughs> battles with that guy because I often out-qualify him, but he was just faster in the race. Like, he just, for whatever, whatever setup they had, and I would just, I was so aggressive, so aggressive, uh, particularly with him, um, just because he had such a leg up on me. Back to Will in a moment. Next up on the show, oh, yes, Todd Woodbridge, one half of the Woodies who dominated doubles tennis in the 90s and early 2000s. Todd is now a world-class tennis commentator, and it is a privilege to have him on the show. I had been playing with Jason Stoltenberg, who sort of, we'd gone really well, but Stoltz didn't really want to play doubles all the time. He's just, I'm going to focus on my singles. And we'd been in the quarters of Wimbledon, and I'm thinking, hello, I'm a teenager. I'm in the cause of Wimbledon doubles. I can do pretty good here. And Mark came along. And so he was a bit older. He was lefty. And all the great teams have been left, yes. right. Um, he'd won a major. So, he, you know, I, I was knew I was going to be a bit nervous about doing that because I used to get a bit tight. And he was able to work through that. Um, his personality was a personality that I knew would help me because he's, he's pretty stoic and full of self-confidence 
and I could be less than that at times. And so we, we approached and we played. Funny enough, we actually played on the wrong side. I'm a forehand court player, huh. but he'd played that court with John McEnroe. So, you know, he's the older guy. He's the Grand Slam champion. So he took that, he took that side for the first few times we played, and I went to the backhand side. And eventually, well, we did okay. Did you win first up? Uh, no, we didn't win first up, we, but we made a couple of semis and okay. stuff. And eventually, one year, we're like, it was, must have been 91. We're playing in Sydney and we're a set all. And I said, oh, can we change sides? Because I'm not enjoying this. And we flipped like <laughs> at the beginning of the third set, which you're allowed to do. And <laughs> that was history. And from then on, um, we won our first tournament. I think we made the semis Australian Open. So that was 91. Won our first tournament a few weeks later in Copenhagen together um, in Europe in the indoor season. And from that moment on, I think we it's approximately every fourth tournament we played, we won. That is Todd Woodbridge up next on the show. Let's rejoin Will. 2005, you and, well, who's become one of your really good mates, obviously one of your best mates, I think it'd be fair to say, Will Davidson. And Will has shown me this, it's, ah... Oh, Will, it's like a five-second clip on his phone of him driving out of the pits in the Minardi. I think you guys got to do a test together, yeah? Yep. So I've looked everywhere online. I don't know if you've got any vision. I can't find it anywhere. Um, How did it it come to pass that you're in a Formula One car with one of your mates in Italy? Um, That was uh, Paul Stoddard. Paul Stoddard owned Minardi. Yep, gave Weber his start. That's right. Um, he promised us a, a test and, and yeah, Will had dropped out of Formula 3. I think he ran out of budget and um, went back to Australia and was racing supercars. I continued in Formula 3. I did the full season with docking. Um, first half went really well. Second half did not. And, uh, yeah, we got that test. And that test actually started the started the next uh, step for me, you could say, because I thought, well, if I'm going to test this Formula 1 car, I want to make sure I know the track. So I looked around for an F3000 team that could test me in their car and we found one, Draco, and they tested me. And that day they were testing four drivers and I was one of them. And I was just like, uh, you know, let's throw him in, give him his laps and who is this guy? We don't even know who he is. And they were testing the three others to decide who gets their, you know, one of their race seats or two of their race seats. They've got two cars for the next season in World Series by Renault. Um, and I was a second quicker than their three drivers in the time I got. I was a second quicker. And they were like, what? what? Who, who are you? This is the kind of thing they said to me. Saying, who are you? We don't know. You haven't got a manager because they used to do it with managers and this sort of thing. Um, so then... I signed something with them thinking, because I said, look, I'm, I'm, my uh, work permit in the UK is up. I have nowhere to go back, back to Australia. So I'm going back to Australia. And so I think they were, they were kind of trying to work out whether I have money or not because, you know, it cost 600,000 euro to run that. So they had me sign a document. Um, no, I went back to Australia and was like, yep, Racing career's over. I'm going back to work because I was a canvas goods manufacturer by trade, so I was going to go back and work. And, um, you know, didn't 
think anything of it. But those Italians were very, very interested. They were really surprised. I thought, yeah, yeah. I, I just said, look, I have no money. I cannot. I said, I can't run. I'm sorry. I've got no money. And I just went back and just ignored it and said, yeah, it's not not a thing I can do. And what, what type of job were you going to do back in Australia? I'm a canvas. It's called canvas goods manufacturing is the name of the trade. So that's making tents, awnings, boat covers, car covers, tonneau covers. So you're coming back to do that? You're yeah. coming back to build covers? Coming back to do my trade, yep. Wow. Yep. And then they called me, actually. They called me and I said they were really, I guess they were used to negotiating with people to get for people to get a good deal because, you, in general, if you had 600000 you just pay the 600000 you get all the testing and you're going to run with these guys. I had no money. I said, I simply don't have any money. I'm sorry. And uh, they said, all right, there's a big open test coming up. We'll, we'll you sign a deal with us and it'll cost you £20,000 uh, to get out of it if, if you break the deal and go drive somewhere else or whatever. Uh, I said, fine, yeah, because I, I haven't got any money. I'm not going to be able to run anyway. <laughs> so I went and tested and I was really quick. It was quicker than all their guys again and... I think Robert Kubica was the quickest that day. I was second, but I was only in the car for, you know, a couple of sessions in the morning. Um, and then then they were really interested. They were going to give me a deal for 200,000 euro or 250,000 euros. Okay. So I would only have to bring less than half the budget. Right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So you're not getting paid. You, you, you're a half budget man. Gotcha. Yeah, that dragged on. That dragged on and ended up kind of falling out with them and then... Um, my girlfriend at the time, Carrie Fenwick, was working for Mark Webber. And when I said, oh, the deal with the Italian uh, Draco team fell through, um, it's not going to happen, I'm not going to be coming back, I'm sorry. And she was really upset. And then she spoke to Mark Webber and they said to her, well, why don't you just, look, we'll back it, why don't you call Carlin, which is a really good team in the UK. Yes. I think Mark was going to put in, I can't remember what Mark was putting in, maybe it was half or quarter of the season, but he said, just start it with them and don't tell them you haven't got the budget and we'll find it. Um, that's how we went about it. Um, so it was getting me into pretty good debt. You know, I was going to have to pay all these bills back, you know, pay Mark back. I think the Australian Motorsport Foundation uh, that time, there's a few other people. I owed Alan Docking from my former three year before that in 04. So this was 05 with, uh, with Carlin in the World Series by Renault. So what type of debts are we sort of talking about racking up at this point? Ish. Uh, yeah, three or four hundred thousand, I reckon. That's a lot of boat covers. That is a lot of boat covers. I would never have been able to yeah, that would have been a <laughs> that would have been tough. So but you eventually get in the Formula One car. I do, yeah. I test that Formula One car that day. How many laps do you get? I think we got twenty laps each. What was it like? Oh, was it like nothing you'd driven? Oh, blew me away because all I'd driven at that point is a Formula 3 car and the F2000, which really was nothing compared to the Formula 1. And it just blew me away, man. Like going out of the pits the first time because these things rev to like 18 grand. I kind of put the pedal down. It's like, oh, I'm not even seeing any shift lights. So then I just let it go and it's just, oh, it blew me away. The acceleration <laughs> and the brakes were the things that just blew my mind. Acceleration was insane at that point because, you know, the most I'd have, see, that's probably 850 naturally aspirated horsepower. I would say Formula 3 is probably 200. 
F3000 would be more in the 350 range. But, yeah, so you're doubling your power and the thing's as light as all get out. Uh, yeah, it was amazing. It was. And, and what were you and Will saying? There's two young blokes from Australia and, and you're getting to know each other at that stage and then you, you're there together testing your Formula One car. We were pretty competitive with each other, extremely. <laughs> so that Formula One test was really... <laughs> We actually did basically exactly the same lap time, believe it or not. We did the same lap time um, and, uh, uh, yeah, and the team was amazed. The engineers were amazed how fast we were straight away because they had guys they'd been testing for a day or two and we were immediately just about as fast as them within like five laps or something because we were so determined to beat each other. And was so was there any opportunity there is there discussions going on if you do a good job here, you can look ahead to Formula One or, again, is it just way, way, way too much money you're going to have to bring to the table so it's not even an option at that point? That, at that point, it's not even an option. There's no way. Um, yeah. So as a young man, like a lot of people that aren't into motorsport won't realise this fact that if you don't have the money, it's going to be really, really difficult to progress. Do you think the talent still gets there in the end? And, and would you get frustrated as a 19 or 20, 21-year-old when you're thinking, well, I'm quick or quicker than this guy, but he's got more money than me? Like, mm. if, if, you're, if you're the best batsman, you're in. If you're the best footballer, you're in. If you're the best rugby league player, you're in. But it's not necessarily if the quickest driver you're in due to finances. It must be hard to get your head around as a young man. It is, um, it is frustrating because you see... Back then you would look and you go, well, if I had that much testing and that much money, I'll bet you I could beat that guy. I bet you I could, yes. you know, you always kind of felt that. Um, and that's just reality of motorsport. It's expensive. It's expensive from the beginning in go-karting. Um, it's just one of those sports that costs a lot of money and, um, you know, karting's a great starting point in motorsport, which every single driver in Formula One has go-karted, everyone in IndyCar and supercars, it's what everyone does. Um, and, and even that's expensive. Even that costs these days quite a bit of money to run. I mean, you can run it yourself, you can do that, but when it gets down to the nitty-gritty and you've got to have the best engine builder and the best team and, you know, sets of tyres and testing and all that stuff, it costs money. It's just, uh, you know, and Europe is another level. It's another level of what I would call rich kids. Like rich kids, like it's just, yeah, Formula One is the ultimate, is, yeah, all those guys that get to Formula One in general would come from a lot of money, I think. So you move from Europe to America. We'll, we'll, we'll leave a bit out there, but it gets 2009 and you get the opportunity if I've got my dates right, to drive for Roger Penske. Now, for those familiar with motorsport, they immediately know his name, but for those that are not, to just describe this man to me, Will, um, like his achievements, uh, would take three days to go through them all, but what type of character is he? And when you sign for him, is it a bit daunting? And why is he so successful? Yeah, Roger um, is obviously well-known in motorsport, but he's... Uh extremely uh, successful in business, owns, I don't know how many car dealerships, but I think he employs 40,000 people. That's what I wow. think in, in all his dealerships. I think that, I think I'm correct on that. I don't know, but I think it's about that. But, um, yeah, dealerships all around the world, 
um, extremely successful in business, very successful in motorsport. He's the team you want to drive for in the US in open wheel racing in in, in uh, IndyCar. He's the most successful team in history. He's uh, um, I better get this right. I think it's eighteen Indy five hundreds. I can't remember. If, I think it's eighteen Indy five hundreds. Um, a lot of championships, but. Uh, yeah, and three NASCAR championships, and and this year, he, he for the first time in history, he won the IndyCar championship and the NASCAR championship in the same year. So he's the best team. It's uh, is an unbelievable facility here, and um, yeah, if you sign for Roger, you're extremely lucky, and you're expected to win and perform. And what's that moment like when you're riding? W Power and signing your name on a Penske contract. That was um, basically it started with Elio Castroneves getting arrested for tax evasion, and helped, and that helped. Yeah, so they're looking for a guy while he goes to trial. I think they've said to him, "Look, you go fight this case, and in the meantime, we're going to hire another guy, but you'll have a seat if when you get." It. When you get off, or if you get off, I guess <laughs> if you don't go to jail, but you you'll have a seat, and that's you know typical Roger. He's very very loyal. So I was a guy out of a number of drivers. I went and had an interview with him. I was extremely nervous because you had Roger, who is Roger Penske. You had Tim Sindrick, who is the president of Penske Racing, and and Bud Danker, who um, is Roger's right hand man, sitting there. And what do they ask you? Like what? Like what type of job interview is it? What do they ask? Yeah, oh, I was, um, you know, in two thousand and eight. At the end, it was the last Gold Coast IndyCar race, and I was leading it by a mile, and I hit the wall. Now, if you've just joined us, Will Power was leading until this. Right there, you see, left front, clipped the inside, broke the wheel, straight in on the other side. Bam! A crushing blow for Team Australia. He dominated. He was on pole. He pulled away from Ryan Briscoe. He was Another look right there. Gone. Just terrible end of the day. And it took a chunk out of my wheel and I, I crashed. And his guy was coming second. Uh, Roger wasn't there. He was watching on TV. But Derek Walker, who I had driven for originally in IndyCar, talked to me before he went to went to interview with Roger, kind of helped me out with what Roger's going to ask. He said, the first thing he's going to say to you is, hey, how about that crash in Australia? And sure enough, that's what he said to me, the first thing. He goes, hey, thanks for that win in Australia. And so I was ready. Wow. I was like, yeah, it was a bad mistake. <laughs> Blame myself, not the team or anyone else, because that's probably what he wanted to hear, um, you know, as per Derek Walker. Yeah. I was just very nervous. I couldn't answer naturally. I was just like Tim Sindrick described it afterwards in an interview years later. He said it was like he was a robot. And that was true. I couldn't. I was really, really nervous. Oh, it was terrible when I turned up. Anyway, when I left that, I was like, nah, they're not going to hire me. There's no way. You know, I was too nervous. I didn't answer very well or clearly and, and so on. But um, So do you, get, do you get a phone call or what happened? A few weeks went past. Just about to get on a plane to Australia, um, just sitting at home in the apartment the night before for wife, and she's asleep on the couch. Get a phone call. It's like, yeah, hi, uh, Will. It's, it's uh, Roger Penske and Tim Sindrick here. They're on together. <laughs> just wanted to let you know that uh, you got the ride. And, uh, wow. you know, I'm clicking my fingers to my wife. 
my girlfriend at the time, like, <laughs> trying to be calm. I was calm on the phone. I don't know if they expect me, like, no way. I was like, oh, wow, thank you. <laughs> so that was, that was pretty cool going home for Christmas for the first time, knowing what I'm doing the next year, because that hadn't been the case for a long time. Always wondering, yeah. what am I doing? It's always a, a real torturous Christmas. Uh, uh, wondering what am I doing the year next year? You know, I put all this effort in, but this time I knew. This time I knew I was, I was only guaranteed some testing. If Elio's trial finished early, then I wouldn't even get to the racetrack. But um, fortunately, I did. I did one race, finished six, went to Long Beach, and they were saying, um, you know, Elio's verdict's going to come in. I think on that Friday, that uh, wow. of, pra- of practice. So I come in the pits, Tim Sendrick's on the radio, he says, well, good news is that you're P1, you're quickest in practice. Bad news is, is that Elio, Elio was acquitted and you're out, <laughs> but we bought you another car and we're going to run you, but you go to the back of the pit lane, we're going to run you. And um, <laughs> so they bought a car and a crew for me that was just sitting in the hotel waiting for the verdict and came, they pulled a spare car out and I out-qualified both those guys and qualified on pole. I was a qualified P1. And um, then I, I, um, I had a, a bad accident at Sonoma, uh, which was my second-to-last race that I was going to do. And speaking of willpower, he's not here today because yesterday during practice, first of all, Nelson Philippe got off track at turn number four. Then willpower comes over the hill and makes heavy contact with the right side of Nelson Philippe's car. Absolutely incredible impact that tore up both cars. We are very happy to report, however, that neither driver has been seriously injured. Now, here's the update. Will Power has compression fractures at L2 and L4 in his back and a concussion. And I was airlifted. I broke my back badly. And, um, yeah, I was done then out for, you know, six months sort of recovery. But when I was lying in hospital thinking my career's over, Roger Corr said, look, don't worry. Spend your time getting better. We'll have something for you next year. That's what he said, which is really cool. Really, uh, you know, very typical of Roger to set your mind at ease and, and yeah, when his word's as good as anything. And that's where we get to the, the real crux of your story in many ways, I think, Will, that the one thing that I've, I've learned from this podcast is that most people that succeed have failures or tough times along the way. And this is this is the part I really wanted to talk to you about, mate. Um, so you get to, that's 2009, you get to 2010, you go into the final race of the season, leading the championship. Yeah. And then you crash. Uh, yes, I got into the wall. We are cautioned for the third time. And we think it was Will Power. Yeah, that's a lot of contact. Did you see that he, he didn't move his wheel at all? You're just up in the gray there and you get the marbles and just it slides up in the wall. There's nothing he could do. So you lose the championship by five points. Yes, that's right. Very dominant on all the road and street courses, but not so on the ovals. It was just a lack of experience. Um, but, but uh, yeah, it was, and it was also mentally the wrong approach, you know, because I said to myself, if at halfway I'm not leading, I'm not in a position to win the championship, I'm just going to go for it. And that was wrong. That was the wrong thing to do. I mean, you should have just been executing in every way, you know, 
from the outset, there, was ne- there never should have been a time where you're just going to take big risks and try to win unless it was the last lap and there's no- nothing. It was obvious you're going to lose. But halfway through the race, yeah, it wasn't worth doing that. Not that I did anything crazy. I mean, I just got some dirty air and, and I'd been running the wall all night right up the wall. It's just there's a foot of probably about a foot of dust of just dirt and everything. I'd just been running all the way around that. And if you went one inch into that, you're going to just graze the wall, like hit the wall, do some damage. And that's what happened. Um, so, you know, I was running that fine line. And, uh, uh, yeah, that was, that was just a lack of experience. And, you know, just when I think about how good I am mentally now, I will which just comes with a ton of experience in in all those situations and just experience in life, I would have been so much better off in so many ways. I mean, I would have won a lot more. I would have won a lot more um, championships. But the championship for 2010 goes to Dario Franchitti. He did what he had to do. He sat on the pole. He led the most laps. And he wins the IZOD IndyCar Series championship by five points. Dario Franchitti, who won it, was older and very experienced and yep. he definitely wasn't as fast as me, but he, he mentally, he was way ahead of me. That is the end of Willpower Part A. Much, much, much more to come in Part B.